G'day and welcome to Wayne's Wonderworld. This podcast will mainly be about musicians, entertainers and actors. Uh, but from time to time, I'll also have other guests who I find interesting. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please head to waynewonderworld.com and please feel free to follow me on my Facebook page, which is Wayne's Wonderworld. Tony McCauley, welcome to Wayne's Wonderworld. Who are you? I'm a compulsive creative, I suppose is the <laughs> most accurate term. I'm only really ever happy when I'm making something, creating something, repairing something, rebuilding something. Yeah. <laughs> it extends to my hobbies and my career and everything else. Um, I'm a fundament, I suppose I'm best known as a songwriter uh, through the 60s and 70s. Uh, I don't know how many hits I had in Australia, but I think I had 38 top 20 hits in the UK and Jeez. about 24, including albums in the States. Um, and I sold 52 million CDs or, uh, and, and records in my day. And won nine British Academy Awards and quite a few other things and pieces. I was composer to the Queen for three years, did a lot of the royal, big youth royal events and so on. Wow. Um, subsequent to that, I did a lot of theatre um, and I had a hit music from the West End, which went on to innumerable production, especially in the States and Germany, hmm. and became writer in residence to a theatre here in Orlando till about five years ago. Oh, wow. For a long period. Um, I've written a number of successful novels. Okay. Um, I then taught thriller writing at Brighton University. Okay. One of my students is one of the most successful writers of historical fi uh, fiction in England. Okay. Had about six number one books. Um, I love painting on oils, carpentry, history. Um, I could go on. Wow. Well, I do, have, I do have a few questions for you, Tony. So um, thank you for okay. that introduction. It's always a very hard question when someone says, who are you? And to encapsulate that in such a short amount of time. So I uh, thank you for that, Tony. Um, so we'll just move on to our second question. And that is, at what age did music first interest you? Um, my mother, who was an excellent pianist, a classical pianist, tried to get me to play the piano and uh, I got a note from my piano teacher and I was about eight wow. saying, uh, we're sending back your five shillings and sixpence because Tony <laughs> has absolutely no, no musical talent, whatever. Oh, that's a bit sharp. Um, yeah, and uh, no, I suppose when I was about, I, I, I once interviewed Paul Simon for a BBC uh, radio show. Okay. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel and I asked him why he got involved in music. And he said to get girls, <laughs> uh, which I thought was a wonderful answer. And I think around puberty, a lot of boys who never ever thought about being involved in music uh, suddenly realized that if you're in a band, you, you do much better with women. <laughs> and uh, so Buddy Holly was, uh, uh, my friends and I, we just worship Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers and wow. all the a lot of the people of that era. Hmm. Not Presley, myself particularly, although I wrote for Presley and met Presley and so on and the rest of it, I never... I, I never liked Presley that much. Um, and we got involved, you know, we formed a band, not a very good one. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm still in touch with the, all the people of it. I've known them since I was about 14 or 15. Oh, wow. And um, and it started from that. Oh, very interesting. And um, can you describe your music style? 
I'm like a lot of people, when you listen to the radio, a top 40 radio, you're influenced heavily by that. And so I was pretty mainstream in my uh, approach. Uh, in the early 60s, the people, well, I started taking real interest in it from the late 50s. And writers like Goffin and King and Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde and people of that sort. But the two schools that really, really affected me in a positive way were Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Okay. Uh, his songs were extraordinarily melodic and very challenging from a harmonic point of view uh, and very interesting. And they weren't songs you danced to, they were songs you listened to. And at the other end of the scale was the Holland Dozier Holland who created the Motown catalogue, oh, largely. Wow where their songs were more rhythmic than they were anything, although they had some very strong tunes. But So in a sense, my early songs combined those two songs into one uh, to some extent. If I wanted mm. I wanted to write very melodic songs, but I also wanted songs that you could dance to. Yeah. Because that was, that when you're trying to launch unknown bands particularly, that was always a very necessary thing. Mm. Mm. Um, and uh, so that it grew from that. Oh, okay. And um, I guess with the music side of things, when when you were starting out, was there any one sort of key person that inspired you that you're, you know, sort of looking up to? Um, to well, not artists particularly, no, because I never thought of it from that way around. Yeah, okay. I had artists that I liked, but I mean, in those days, most artists did not write their own material, and I was more interested in who the writers were and who the producers were. I see. And so, and I've never. Either I've, you know, even though I've worked with most of the big names of my generation, some form or other, I never, I always preferred, you know, certain records that they'd made, but didn't mean I liked the rest of their catalogue particularly. It was just that one record. So, I mean, I like records. I like uh, rather than artists or writers. Hmm. No, fair enough. Yeah, very interesting. And um, with the music uh, career you, that you started out with, what was your first job? <laughs> well, that's a lovely remark. I used it in my act, uh, but, you know, occasionally perform for charity and things. Yeah. Um, it's that I started, I trained as a civil engineer, and the only job I could get was in sewage treatment design. <laughs> so <laughs> a critic who hated me, my stuff, Years later, said songwriter Tony McCauley used to be a sewage engineer. Instead of shoveling, he shoveling it, he writes it. <laughs> Goodness. Um, I started. I realised quite quickly that uh, when I started taking songs to a music publisher in London, that the only chance of getting your songs recorded really was to become a producer. Right. And then you can wear both hats. Like Tony, one of the big ones in England at the time was Tony Hatch. He was kind of the, he was the first British songwriter producer who also wrote the songs for all these acts oh, okay. and so I sort of modeled my that was my dream to become him the fact that I replaced him at Pyre Records <laughs> was, was ne never in my mind as, as a possibility and so I got a, I thought if you're on the inside of the music business looking out you've still a much better chance uh, uh, and of course that's exactly what I, I got a job as a plugger I didn't even know what a plugger was until I, I had the job for two weeks. Oh, wow. <laughs> but it meant I was in the business, and I went drank at the music business pubs and mixed with music business people. So consequently, when I, a couple of years on, 
uh, well, about a year and 18 months on, when I heard there was a job going as a record producer. And in those days, um, with one or two exceptions, nearly all record producers worked in-house for the four major uh, record companies right. of the day. So there were only about a dozen record producers in the whole industry. Oh, wow. And there were a few independents who were making it. But really, um, so I blagged my way into a job at Pie Records. Oh. And um, and after about six months, I decided I could. I've been writing songs for a while, but I didn't think my so songs were good enough, really. Okay. Anyway, in the end, out of desperation, I recorded a couple of my own songs, and they both went to number one. Wow. Uh, at the same time, one knocked the other one off number one. <laughs> I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> um, in retrospect, it was a stupid thing, oh. but at the time, it caused quite a lot of interest in the music business. No one's ever done that before. <laughs> oh, wow. Goodness. As you mentioned uh, a few um, moments before, um, you've sold more than... 52 million copies of your um, songs that you've worked on uh, worldwide. Where do the ideas come from to write such catchy tunes? Um, good question. Um, I don't think anybody can answer that 100% accurately. I think I always networked very heavily. Uh, so that I, had, I was writing with most of the other hit songwriters of the day especially if they were producers, because then if two of us got together, we, that doubled the, the possibility of acts that we could write for. I see, yeah. And um, when I was always looking out for titles, and I remember knocking over a, a cup of a glass of of, uh, what, of beer in a pub, and the barmaid's <laughs> name was Su Suzanne. I said, sorry, Suzanne. Oh. And I turned into a song with the, a hit for the Hollies, and I think all the time you're looking for lines, um, lines crop up in conversation. Also, when you find it's, you've got a particular act that's got a particular style, you know, you bend your technique to, to create that, you know, to, to emulate that style. Yeah. And that automatic, for example, when Roger Greenaway decided to resurrect the Drifters, who'd been successful in the late 50s, and, and he, 10 years later, we... we well, no, more like 20 years later. Wow. Uh, he decided to pull them back again. Okay. And so obviously, you know, we had those Saturday night type songs, you know, all about parties and come down and join the party. So obviously that tremendously influenced what we did for them. Every song had to be danceable to, had to have a, you know, a joyous freedom kind of 50s feel about it. Wow. The New Seekers, again, you know, was very white, very English very or american but which is contrary to what i everything i ever wrote had a very strong black undertone to it because mm. that's what i loved you know and it, i can go on forever but right for andy williams glenn campbell donna summer blah blah blah, blah and whoever you elvis particularly you know i walked around you walk around the houses making elvis noises to yourself all day <laughs> and you, you, you know you're thinking of you know if you watched i used to watch top of the pops oh, yes. and then switch it off and then you get a sense of what was in the charts, and you know your brain starts to to absorb the exact detail of what is that the public are responding to at that particular point in time. So it's very very affected by the market. Um, I mean, I'm very affected by the artists that I wrote for, coming up with something that absolutely fitted the you know the mould. Wow. Well, that's very interesting, Tony. Uh, I've got my next question here, which is something that maybe 
sort of interesting for you, and that is with some of your songs um, that you have written, um, it, it may amaze you that some are quite popular at the moment on TikTok. So I'm not. Yeah, sure. yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think uh, one of them is "A Love Grows Where Rosemary Goes." Does it amaze you that these songs can blow up, you know, so long later and get oh much attention God, on social media? I mean, yeah, hardly. I mean, every three or four days, I get a license for a film or a, TV, a major TV thing or a, a commercial or of something of the catalogue. Oh wow! So no, I'm absolutely thrilled by it. The songs get played all the time. I mean, we have the oldest stations on there every, you know, two a couple of times a day, three times a day, get songs on and. It's extraordinary, and we, you know, we were all very gratified, you know. And some of the songs, you know, it took a few hours or a day to write, you know, and here they are, all these years later, still being played a lot. It's nice. Mm. It definitely sounds like a nice thing to have, I guess, to, you know, have another generation uh, so many years later on to pick up on a certain song or certain certain tune, and you know, see, you know, see uh, the modern sort of meaning to it, I guess. Yeah. That's awesome. And um, just touching on that, regarding um, the request for these, you know, different licenses that, that movies uh, or TV ads may, may want, uh, one thing I've been uh, learning um, along the way, speaking to musicians, is that it's always important to, wherever you can, hold on to your publishing rights because once those are gone, they're gone forever, aren't they? Yes, I mean, it's still, as you probably know, it's much, you know, it's still a very popular thing to sell these rights. Yeah. I, I never met a writer, I never met a writer yet that didn't regret doing so. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, the vicissitudes of life sometimes, you know, a divorce or something, you want to try and get some money back in the bank, but it's a mistake. Mm. Always. Oh, in my view, yeah, I agree with you. Oh, very totally. good. And, um... Yeah, that's very interesting. And, of course, there's one song which uh, I'd say a lot of the younger people would probably know, and that's Build Me Up Buttercup. I was recording the Foundations. Uh, I mean, and a friend of mine I'd known from the first day I was in the business was Mike Darbo, who was the lead, went on to be the lead singer in Manfred Man. Lived a few streets away from me in a very elegant townhouse with his model wife. Wow. And I went down there with my current girlfriend for dinner. They went in the kitchen to uh, talk. And Mike said, I've got the beginnings of a tune. It's got a stupid title, but we can fix that. And by the time dinner was served, we had most of it done. Wow. And I originally was going to record it with a girl group, which would have been a huge flop because, I mean, 
calling a boy Buttercup would have been a bit strange. <laughs> it would have. Anyway, thank goodness they turned it down, and I recorded it with Foundations, and uh, I pretty much knew right from the beginning it was going to be a hit. I mean, they were feeling we'd, we'd had a couple of hit, big hits with that band already. Wow. And therefore, there were, and we'd had a number one in America with it. So when it went to number one in America, that uh, there was an expectation it was going to do extremely well. On the day of the recording, I, I, I you know, experimented with "Build Me Up, Baby, I Love You" or something to get rid of the buttercup, you know. Yeah. But somehow we could never come up with anything better. Okay. And uh, so, uh, and now, now, of course, all these years, I'll never think about it. But it was a kind of, it gave it an identity that was unique. Uh, part of the problem is the word up only rhymes with cup uh, or a couple of other things and so that's always an issue rhyming and so on but uh, it uh, had a very very long life it was obviously being the fact that it's the last 3 minutes 45 seconds of the film uh, something about Mary did it no harm oh yes and of course then uh, Thousands of people did videos and wedding videos, including my own family, <laughs> to that song, all sing, miming along, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, yes, that has a, there's an inquiry about that about every three or four days of something, <laughs> you know, a TV show, commercial, Gee. a movie. So that has a perpetual life. It's one of about, there's about eight songs that crop up all the time. Wow. And then, of course, most of the others are on the, on the radio at some point or other. Hmm, that's very interesting. So I guess, you know, depending if maybe like a blockbuster movie uses one of your songs, that then makes this perpetual sort of thing again, doesn't it? With people um, seeing it worldwide and, you know, doing their things on YouTubes and maybe sparking more ideas or interest to, you know, get the licenses to use that song. And I guess it's, you know, it's only good for the um, the uh, composer, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, there's about eight major movies that you, that, that are on television all the time wow. that, that uh, have my songs. And some of them have a couple in, you know. Um, and that's been very, very fortunate. Hmm. Hey, um, also, just one more thing. I just recalled, Tony, uh, when I was doing research regarding um, that song on TikTok at the moment, uh, Love Grows Where Rosemary Goes, I believe in the past few weeks that's reached the American Billboard Top 200, would you believe? Yes, apparently so, yeah. yeah. I've not been following it that closely. <laughs> no, nah, nah, fair enough. Like, I guess all these things are always popping up. It's just so hard to keep up with it all. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, very, I was very aware that it was a huge success on TikTok. Yeah. I know it went in the top uh, 100 at one point. Oh, wow. But, uh, I don't know how far it went. That's oh, crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ah. And um, moving along to something a, a bit a bit different now, um, I believe that you were involved in a landmark court case in the 1970s. Can you talk to me a bit about this? Yes. Um, the music publishers of the day yes. <laughs> uh, were almost universally involved with a practice called double dipping. Right. And it meant that when you went to them, they said, look, we'll take 50% of the song if we, you know, to publish it. But if you go to a foreign publisher, an American publisher, I mean, we've got then to do a deal with the publisher, so you'll only get 25%. Oh, wow. The crooked thing being, of course, is that they own the publisher in America too. <laughs> so they weren't operating at arm's length with each other. They were publishing with themselves, which is fraud. Uh, and it 
uh, anyway, because the whole industry were doing it and had been doing it for years, um, I was told that, that you know they had no chance of overturning it. Jeez. So after seven years of going through the various courts, ending up in the Supreme Court in England, uh, we got that reversed. Also, my contract was for 10 years, oh, as wow. was my recording contract. Now you can't have any contract longer than three years. Because of the court case now, there has to be mutuality of obligations. So for every clause where they say the writer must, there must be there are clauses saying the publisher must, whereas originally the publisher was on there no obligation to do anything. Hmm. Wow. You put your song in the drawer and forget about it, a point made by the judge at the time. So that was a very long, arduous business. Yeah. Uh, I did not get my song back, but I got my freedom from the publisher. Uh, I was able to sign, you know, agreements with other people. Wow. And then subsequently, everyone you can think of, from Paul McCartney, Elton John, everybody you can think of, went to their publishers and said, you know, if you want me to say, you've got to change the deal. They're caused an absolute upheaval now. But I was talking to the president of the British Academy of Songwriters about a month ago, and he was unaware of the case. So it, it, huh. it's so long ago now that, you know, it, it's kind of forgotten. And also, its significance of music publishers completely evaporated. Yeah. I mean, people, uh, the whole industry has become so diverse. And the idea of someone taking 50% of your song to do absolutely nothing with it, you know, uh, nearly all artists write their own material or have material in-house. Mm. And the idea of having anybody run around and try and fix your songs with outside artists is completely out of the arc. Sure. So... It's a kind of uh, irrelevant issue, I guess, largely. Yeah, it's quite interesting though, Tony, because back then, I guess you you were the one that started this change, and so many musicians, you know, uh, benefited from your case being the landmark, I guess, being the first to actually do something about it. So that's amazing, I think. Um, yeah, the British Academy gave me a, a, an Ivan Novello Award, uh, although it was a sort of lifetime achievement award. I got it much earlier than most people, simply because. They reckon the case has, you know, improved a lot for songwriters, which was nice. Wow. And um, just touching what you just said a bit before about, you know, I guess these days musicians, as long as they have a catchy tune, they can, you know, publish their own music, really. So I guess, you know... Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Provided it's registered, w registered with the Performing Rights Society, you know, then you're yeah. going to get... And uh, you have some mechanism to, you know, collect your money. Hmm. I but, mean... Uh, I guess the days of the publishers are really sort of dying, I guess, aren't they? <laughs> well, they should have done anyway. It was all nonsense. Yeah. I mean, if you go back to the turn of the, you know, the 1900s, when, or 1890s, I mean, the only way a song could be disseminated publicly was for someone, for you to go down to the music shop and buy the sheet music and play it on a piano. Yeah. And therefore, and and therefore to have someone actually publish your song physically in, in paper form was vital. Mm. But as the record industry became more and more important, the only function a publisher really had that was of importance was to get the song to the act. Yeah, I uh, In England, it was utterly, utterly corrupt. I mean, half the people that we think of, going back to those days, and I can give you names, yeah. who are meant to have written their songs, did nothing of the sort. They bought the song for five pounds of some impoverished writer who never saw another penny wow. and put their own name on it. Gee. Uh, and all that, of course, is, has been largely stamped out, I think, many, many, many years ago. So the time I came into the industry when, you know, 
a, a lot of the uh, acts had in-house writing or wrote, began to write for their own songs. A publisher was completely unnecessary. Hmm. Wow. And then the other, of course, big aspect of it all was that they saw the publisher said, yes, but we protect your copyright. Yeah, well, then when, when uh, iTunes and, and all these other delivery systems came along yeah. and, and the writers got no royalties, I mean, even that wasn't true. And of course, everything's been updated somewhat now. And, but uh, no, I think, uh, I think in my day, I think a lot of publishers are absolute crooks. Mm. There's no other word for it. Um, can we can we move on to to talk about um, what you mentioned a bit before about your musicals? Um, how many musicals have you produced? Um, about uh, six. Gee. Uh, but I, I did two in the very early seventies when I was sort of uh, Freddie Beanstalk, who was the head of Motown Publishing and Elvis Presley's Publishing. Oh, wow. A good friend of mine. It's funny, having bad-mouthed the publishers of the day, he was a friend. <laughs> he didn't publish any of my songs. We just used to have dinner together. He thought I should be a musical theater, and I, I wanted to do that very much. Oh, wow. And he got me involved with one of the big theaters in, in London, and I did a couple of shows for them. It was a great learning curve. And then in 1980, uh, when my pop career was sort of winding down, really all I wanted to do was theater by that time. I'd, I'd had... 12 years of uh, doing nothing else but pop music. I oh. kind of thought I really covered the waterfront. I was repeating myself, you know. Yeah. And then I uh, was commissioned by the company that owned half of theatres in the West End of London to write a musical for them, which won quite a few awards. Oh, wow. And that was then picked up in America and uh, has been was on for the better part of 20-odd years uh, somewhere. Gee. And... I got commissioned to do other shows from that. Uh, and there's a theatre here near Orlando, which is brilliantly funded. I raised a lot of money for them. Oh, wow. And uh, they've done all my, not only done, they've, they've commissioned uh, three other shows. Uh, so I had huge fun with that. I wrote the play, the music, and the lyrics. Wow. And some of them had, a lot, some of them had quite a few hits in, uh, which were, you know, I adapted for the project. Hmm. And of course, being Florida with all these theme parks here, there was a wealth <laughs> of acting talent, people at lots of performing arts schools, um, and uh, you've got the you know the great talent of tomorrow appearing in your shows. Yeah. Oh, and wow. of course, being this is a big retirement area, there's massive funding for theatres in this area. Wow. So As there is across the whole of America, they 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 take their musicals very seriously, as wow. they invented the bloody thing and they're entitled to it. And I. I love working here. I've worked here, you know, for more than 50 years. Wow. And I'm pretty much retired now, but I have, you know, I have the most marvelous time here. That's fantastic. I love American audiences too. They're so enthusiastic. Mm. Oh, that's awesome, Tony. Very interesting. Um, and can I just ask you, what was the last musical that you had the opportunity to produce? Last musical was about five, six years ago. Um, it was called... Um, Sherlock in Love. Okay. And I wrote the, the play is basically Jack the Ripper reappears and <laughs> Sherlock Holmes goes in hunt, hunting for him and in, on the way falls in love with the local, with the, with the big um, musical star of the day. Uh, and um, 
they did me proud. I mean, they built this marvellous set, which was, you know, that, the creepy back streets of East <laughs> London, you know. Wow. I built a marvellous costumes, and uh, we had, of course, you know, we had a big orchestra here in England. If you play the West End, you get eight musicians. We had 18, you know. Wow. With real strings, believe it or not. You know, anyway, yeah. so, but I, having, as I executive produced the thing, I cast it, I wrote the play, the music, the lyrics. It absolutely knocked the hell out of me. I mean, I, I loved every minute of it, but I thought, I can't do this again. It takes, it just takes up too much. It takes, you know, it took me a couple of, 18 months, two years to write each one of them. Oh, wow. 18 months. Then. And uh, so, and I didn't have any more good ideas. I just, everything, <laughs> <laughs> everything I wanted to say, I'd said pretty much. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm sure there's a few more still up there. <laughs> Oh, fantastic, Tony. Um, now, this is an interesting question I've got for you now. Um, who would be the most interesting person that you've ever met and why? Right, that's a question and a half. <laughs> um, uh, interesting person I've ever met. Oh. Can we come back to yeah, that? I think that, I need to think about that's that. That's fine. We'll come I back. Mean, uh, yeah. Interesting at what level? I mean, you mean intellectually? Do you mean, um, uh, how I'll would you define interesting? For me, I guess anyone interesting is someone maybe, say, peculiar or maybe someone that does certain things a bit quirky, you know, some that, that would sort of take you by surprise almost. Uh, I don't know. It, it's an inter question. interesting question because everyone just, you know, they have different thoughts about what it sort of means for them and... Who they've encountered through their well, life? Well, I'm very interested in a lot of things. I'm interested in English history. I'm, I'm a quite a good amateur historian. I'm very interested in art. I have two big art collections in England and America. I'm very interested in painting. I'm very interested in carpentry. So, it, uh, different people who you meet, you're interested in them for different reasons. If you're with me, yeah. I mean, for example, the the, the writer who has had so much success, uh, who was a member of my uh, a postgraduate uh, student group, one of the years I did, uh, he had a PhD in history already and wanted to write historical fiction. Wow. So if I want to talk about history, he's a very interesting guy to talk to, you know. Yeah. So uh, and then there's other people that, you know, know about art uh, and so on. So no one person I've ever met, you know, is, is sort of interested in the whole package. If talk, I can tell you about the two most charismatic people I ever met, sort of in, interesting from a historical point of view. Paul yeah. McCartney, I think, was I've always thought was incredibly charismatic. Okay. I mean, I got quite friendly with him at one point, uh, particularly with his first wife. Um, and we were quite good friends. We used to walk our dogs together in, <laughs> in London at the end of the day when he had a house in London. And I always thought whenever I was sitting with him, I was always sitting with one of the greatest, most famous faces of all time. Yeah. And he, most people, however famous they are, and I've worked with just about everybody in my generation, after 10 minutes, they're just anybody else with the same problems anyone. McCartney, that was never true. McCartney, I was always sitting there thinking, you know, Christ, I was sitting with Paul McCartney. <laughs> the other person who was incredibly charismatic was Presley. Wow. Uh, he was 6'2", and had more big, big boots that made him about six. Or six five, and he had, uh, and he he was this just this icon, this famous face, you know, mm. 
he wasn't particularly interesting. Or when I got talking to him on one of the few occasions I was alone with him, I, he said, "Oh, you're from Britain." I said, "Yeah, or England." He said, "Am I still big there?" <laughs> I said, "Yes, you are." I mean, he was one of the most ill-informed people I was ever around. Wow. But in, in terms of people who are what one at one step removed from the rest of us, those two unquestionably were. Yeah. I've also met three presidents, and they seem dead ordinary to me, <laughs> American presidents. But uh, wow, um, those those two figures tower above the others in terms of of fame. Hmm. You know, well, they do definitely sound very interesting to me, Tony, as well. <laughs> yeah. Interesting because they are historical figures more than the people themselves, if you're with me. Of course, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Um, how do you measure your success? Happiness, easily. Um, I've been married to the same lovely woman for 20 years. We've got two beautiful beachfront bunch homes full of art. We've got lovely children, wow. uh, lots and lots of friends. Most importantly, we've both got good health, um, largely. Um, we're comfortably off, um, and therefore every morning I wake up and think about what we're going to do today. And uh, we got we're going out to dinner for friends the next three nights. Um, so happiness is how you measure success. Wow! Uh, and, and happiness is a different thing for every every person. Of course. But I mean, I've got more than in my life than I could ever dream that I would ever would have, and that is a great deal to be. You know, my mother never counted her blessings the glass was always half empty and my glass is always half full you know and it it's a bad day when i get depressed occasionally something's happened because that's just not me you know i'm i mean i spent my entire life doing something i'd have paid to do um and therefore you can never look back even though there are certain reversals of fortune some of which you stumble into by your own stupidity um or ignorance or a combination of both. I think, in general, if you can, they say a man who can monetize his hobby lives the best life, and I think that's probably true. I think so too. And so, <laughs> in some ways, from the age of about 21, I've never done a day's work. Wow. And 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 it's kept me very, you know, and as you say, the longevity of the catalogue wow. does give me satisfaction. Hmm. That's amazing. And um, it sometimes it amuses me when my wife says. Oh, such and such the songs on the radio, and I go, oh yeah. <laughs> I think, God, how strange that is. Really, just say, oh yeah. Do you think those people would be thrilled to have a song on the radio? And I sort of happen to me every few every few hours, even now. So I, uh, oh no, I, I'm I'm quite certain that that's how success should be measured. I guess so, because you've heard these songs, you know, thousands of times. It does get old, doesn't it? <laughs> um. And yet the reverse. If I don't, if I'm, if Sarah's got an oldie station on or something, and I don't hear one of mine after a couple of hours, I get quite irritated <laughs> and quite upset. Oh my God, they're not playing my stuff anymore. Oh, so I mean, uh, the corollary to that argument is is quite a powerful one. <laughs> oh goodness, Tony, um, that w- that was a very good answer there. Um, could you share something with me that not many people may not know about you? And people that don't know me just think of me as the man who wrote Build Me Up Buttercup or one of the <laughs> other songs. As I've said to you, you know, I, I, I'm 
my parents used to take me off to art galleries and to museums and mm. old castles and things right from the early age. So I've always been interested in history, art, music, um, uh, carpet. I mean, I've got a lot of other interests, put it that way. So, you know, I was, um, I was happy writing novels or musicals or, mm. or doing something else other than pop music. Do you have any hobbies um, that you enjoy that you have not mentioned? Um, trying to think. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty. I, I try to keep my mind very alert. I can do the. I can do 980 years of British history from the Norman uh, Conquest with oh, all the key dates oh, wow. and pretty much every major event from memory. Wow. Um, that is very interesting. So I, I, I feed that all the time. I read, I read a lot. Um, I always, I love, I love restoring old uh, furniture and old artworks and oh, old okay. statues and things like that. And I've gradually over the years learnt all the techniques to do it. Wow. Um, so that's a great passion. So it's very interesting, Tony. Um, well, this pretty much concludes the interview, but one final question for you is, is there anything else that that you'd like to mention today? Anything at all? Um, so I'm using an ice cream and a cone my wife's just done for me. <laughs> no dramas. Um, can you be a bit more specific? Um, pr uh, maybe a word of advice perhaps for a young budding musician trying to write that next big song or any any tips on, I guess? Um, of, yeah, you know. I can actually. I have many faults, but one is one of them is uh, I'm very good with creative criticism. Hmm. Um, not con constructive criticism, not when someone says that's a piece of crap. Yep. But when I'm working on a big project, you need... You can miss a lot of things. You need all the help you can get. When somebody says, I think this needs fixing, you know, immediately my attention's on it. Obviously, it depends on who's saying it. But sometimes it can be an audience member who says something. You think, you know, they're absolutely right about that. Hmm. And so one of the ways you get good at something is by listening to what other people say and extracting from it the gems of information that can really help. And I think... When you're writing songs, the more you get, the more people get an opportunity to hear what you've done when you're working on it, when it's not too late and you can still change it. And the more you absorb people's, other people's opinions constructively. Um, obviously, uh, criticism is something that, you know, if you get a good review of, of a project and then there's a line that says, I really think you should get rid of this character or, or the, or the song sh or the show should have this in it. Yeah. You tend to take that much more seriously than somebody who just slags the whole project off. Yeah, you tend to you know ditch. So obviously the way people pitch their criticism is, is crucial. Yeah, but yeah. having said that, I think listening to other people's views as opposed to saying, "Well, what do they know?" Hmm. Um, you can end up with a song that you really like that never sees the light of day. Um, and unfortunately, if you're going to compete in a, in a commercial market, to some extent, the more people that like your song, the better it is. Hmm. You know, and if somebody says, I think that song's rubbish, and you can say, well, unfortunately, well, at least a million and a half people disagree with you because they went out and bought it. 
that's it. So I think um, that's the best advice I can give anyone. Yeah, no, that's that's a fantastic piece of advice there, Tony. Um, well, I'd just like to say thank you for your time today, and thanks for being on Wayne's Wonderworld. A pleasure. Good to speak to you. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please head to waynewonderworld.com and please feel free to follow me on my Facebook page which is Wayne's Wonderworld.